Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor of Political Science and host of this podcast. All views expressed on this podcast are mine and those of our guests. After a few weeks hiatus, as we learn about remote learning and social distancing during this coronavirus pandemic, Beyond Your Newsfeed is back with a new episode. Thanks to the expertise and effort of our producer, Reagan Wind, my guest and I are recording today from our homes via podcast remote software. Once it was clear a couple of weeks ago that recording on campus was unlikely for the balance of this semester, Reagan consulted with Chris Judge of the PC Marketing and Communications Office and found appropriate software to allow us to continue to come together in cyberspace to make the recordings for this podcast. We hope to continue to record episodes over the next couple of months. So stay tuned to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Today, my guests and I are going to discuss the obvious, the politics of the coronavirus crisis. Although listeners at this point may be a bit overwhelmed with all the media discussion of this crisis in all its sobering and frightening detail, I think you will find this discussion a bit different. Rather than focus on the daily developments in the crisis, we're going to take a look at the bigger picture. How have the characteristics of the American political system, such as federalism, separation of powers, partisanship, and the media, shaped the response so far to the crisis? And how might the crisis shape these political institutions and relationships in the future? Our basic question is, how has the political system shaped the events you read about? To address this uh, rather expansive question, I invited to the podcast three colleagues who can provide us some insights from different vantage points. With us today is Professor Paul Heron, our constitutional law expert, who also as an expert on federalism can enlighten us on many of the constitutional legal details associated with what's happening. Professor Adam Myers also is an expert on federalism, and his current research on state government responses to the New Deal will provide some interesting insights into how this crisis compares to that one. And finally, Professor Matt Guardino, a media expert, will help us understand how the media is covering uh, this crisis and shaping people's uh, views and their experience. So Paul, Matt, and Adam, thanks for joining me for the discussion today. Okay. Thanks for, Thanks for having us on. Uh, so Thanks, as Bill. each one of you speak, I'll try to initially to try to identify you. But as we go along, I think our, our listeners will know who's speaking based upon uh, their voice. So I talked about uh, starting with the big picture, but, but maybe we'll actually begin a little small uh, in regards to the news just today that Professor Bernie, that professor, that Senator Bernie Sanders has dropped <laughs> out of the presidential race, or Lisa's going to cease campaigning. Uh, what, what do you all make of that? Uh, Adam, maybe we'll start with you as our party's uh, expert. Well, I think it's not unexpected, you know, given the fact that the chances that he, you know, could win the nomination based on the um, upcoming primaries or caucuses, which may actually not end up happening, um, were very slim to begin with. Um, and given that the, the country's focus is not on electoral politics right now, um, I think it, 
just sort of made sense for him to drop out and um, and and focus his energies on other things, which is what you know everybody should be doing at this point. Anybody else want to chime in on this issue? Uh, I agree with Adam. This was this is really not a surprise, uh, and. Uh, I think that a lot of his supporters are, of course, really disappointed by the way things have turned out. But uh, given the pandemic and and everything that Adam said, um, I think that it was just so a matter do of you time. think that there's going to be a, a coalescing around Biden now? Uh, will will uh, the, the party come together? Uh, the divisions don't seem to be as sharp in the Democratic Party as they were in 2016 when uh, uh, Sanders and, and Clinton were battling for the nomination. Do you all agree with that? Adam, no? I think as a general matter, that's true. Um, and, you know, at the moment, you know, the, the presidential race is is almost an afterthought, as, as crazy as that sounds, you know. Um, we all expected the presidential race to be dominating the headlines from, you know, uh, January to November at the beginning of this year. And at the moment, it, it's really not. Um, it will be interesting to see if, um, you know, those kind of divisions within the Democratic Party that were so clear to us several months ago will reemerge in the future as as we hopefully get out of this whole pandemic thing, or at least, you know, make headway towards getting out of it. Um, that's something that remains to be seen. Okay. So let's move to the big picture then. Let's talk a little bit about the political system, start talking about the political system and how uh, it shaped the, the response to the crisis. And, and let's start uh, with the Constitution. That's where we usually start in studying political science and um, American government classes. So uh, I'd like to ask each one of you to give me your view on what you think about our constitutional arrangements that has had the, the biggest impact so far in how uh, the United States in particular has responded to this crisis. Uh, Paul, you want to start out as our constitutional expert? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, one of the one of the kind of problems with the way our system is set up is that we've divided power uh, based on uh, a kind of prior experience uh, when we were when we were designing our government, right? So the federal government does, does not have kind of broad, unlimited powers to dictate what American citizens do. There's uh, a lot of a lot of that power is left to the states and to the state governments. In fact, as the as the governments are designed, right, the federal government is one of enumerated powers, one of limited powers. They have the powers that are listed in the Constitution, whereas state governments are kind of have plenary power, meaning that their their power is expansive and state constitutions do not list powers, rather they list restrictions on powers. So in this kind of uh, circumstance, it's, it's really uh, the governors who have the most power to kind of set policies about quarantines and the safety and health of citizens, right? But we're facing a problem that's really nationwide and needs to be dealt with from a kind of central point. So I think in many ways, this is testing our system and creating some, some issues. It's similar to what we saw during Katrina when you had 
failures at different levels of government and those different levels of government uh, coming into conflict. And we don't we don't need the federal government and state governments to or state governments to be in conflict with one another. We need to kind of have a uni- unified response. So it's it's presenting some some problems. Yeah, one thing I might like to follow up with on that, Paul, since you mentioned expansive power of state governments, uh, I think many citizens maybe have been somewhat surprised at the extent to which state governments and even local governments can intervene in their lives. That normally we don't think about those governments as having these you know, broad powers to say, require you to stay in your home or uh, to close down your business. Uh, and uh, yet, yet we're living right. These are the kind uh, of uh, also called police powers, but it's kind of this this vision of of government as having this kind of broad, expansive authority over the citizenry and over the over the polity to to make policies that are kind of best for everybody. Now, I mean, go ahead. Adam, sorry, I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say, it, you know, it, we've seen. Uh, you know, governors putting in place quarantines, and especially here in Rhode Island, uh, Raimondo has been up front with saying, you know, we, we, we're going to require people from New York, and then now we're going to require people from everywhere to be quarantined for two weeks. But, you know, nobody's being detained at this point. So, you know, in some ways, they've kind of walked up to the edge of, of, uh, of control, but it hasn't, we, it hasn't resulted in kind of forced quarantines and things like that. Yeah, we are in an area where some of these governors could declare martial law, right? If yeah, that's that would be the next step, right? If they were really going to shut yeah, things down. That, that, but, but what a lot of Americans may not be cognizant of is the fact that they do have that power. And that's a really extensive power. Adam, I think you wanted to say something about this. Yeah, so I have a whole lot to say about this. So um, let me uh, choose my... Um, words carefully here, because uh, I don't want to take up all of the time. I think to, to, to begin with, I would um, disagree somewhat with the original premise of your question, Bill, that that um, that constitutional structure is affecting um, our response to this um, crisis in, in really visceral where, ways compared to other countries. I mean, the reality is what Paul said is absolutely true. The Constitution does establish these different levels of government, but the language in the Constitution concerning um, what, this, what the powers of the federal government are versus the powers of the states, um, a lot of that language is so ambiguous that um, it can be interpreted in lots of different ways. And as a practical matter, that language hasn't stopped the national government throughout American history from intervening in a lot of areas um, where it doesn't have explicit authority. Um, so so I, I don't think the Constitution matters all that much here. And I would also say that in terms of the general question of whether having a federal structure in general um, is impeding um, our national response to this whole crisis, I'm not sure that it is. You know, if you look across the world, you can see examples of countries that are unitary states um, like Italy. Um, that have had major, major problems in their response to this crisis. Um, And then you can look at examples of federal states, federal countries like Germany, where actually public health is extremely decentralized. Um, There, um, the response to the uh, 
to the coronavirus crisis has been really quite good. So um, I don't think that, you know, federalism versus unitary states or centralization versus decentralization in and of itself, um, you know, will affect uh, how well countries respond to this crisis. Um, so Adam, you're saying it's, you're saying it's the more other, sort of a policy choice. That is, that is various it, actors are making certain it, choices about what actions to take or not to take uh, within the framework of federalism, but that framework itself isn't defining how those responses should be, should, 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 should occur. I mean, for, for, so, so to, to get specific, it seems that the Trump administration has been somewhat reluctant to assert uh, across the board some kind of central control over the distribution of medical supplies. Uh, but in fact, that it could if it wanted. You're saying that's right. Um, I think, to a large degree, that's a policy choice that the Trump administration has has made. Now, obviously, institutions are in place. You know, public health departments, hospitals, um, and so forth are in place, and and the way those are regulated, you know, oftentimes occurs at the state and local level. Um, and so, the Trump administration would have to work with state and local institutions. Um, if it wanted to um, wage a really, truly aggressive um, sort of centralizing response to this crisis. But I think if the Trump administration wanted to, it could do a whole lot more. I don't think the Constitution in and of itself um, is the ultimate barrier to this. Um, because to be perfectly frank, the Constitution has never been a barrier to aggressive Can national responses in, in the past. I just, um, I, I, sure, I, I, I agree with Adam on that point. I think he's exactly right. That's all. <laughs> so I want to I want to jump in and, and take a take a uh, slightly uh, disagreeable position to what Adam was saying here. Um, so although I agree entirely that uh, it federalism itself is not you know the only important factor to look at when thinking about cross national differences and how countries have responded to this. Um, one way I think about this is less in terms of the words of the Constitution and what the courts may or may not say about that. But the norms and traditions of governance in this country, which are very decentralized, right, in, in comparison to a lot of other places, and what the expectations are for where action, like who should be the first mover, who should have authority, right, for in areas like this. So, uh, and I think the institutions that Adam talked about are really important. We have a extremely fragmented um, state in terms of things like public health. Uh, and just the healthcare system in general, which of course is not listed or mandated by the Constitution, but I would argue it's at least in part an outgrowth of certain traditions of decentralization, right, that are rooted in the way our system works, for better or for worse. And I think that fragmentation is causing uh, many, many problems, not least of which is something I'd like to talk about at some point, which is the tremendous sort of um, fragmentation in messaging that we're getting across the states um, and from different political actors, which I think is not helping the situation, to say but the least. To get back to Adam's point, I think that that uh, the, the different messaging, the, the fragmentation is also being allowed by the reluctance of the Trump administration to insist on a common message. That is, that is I think I would agree with Adam that if the Trump administration wanted to it could overcome a lot of that fragmentation by simply 
asserting central authority in a really decisive way. And it's and Trump has opted not to do that. And I'm kind of curious about why. How can we understand the extent to which the Trump administration has sort of uh, let this, uh, I guess, Hobbesian war against war, war, war all, of, all against all war to go on and sort of trying to access medical supplies and the like? And why hasn't it used something like the Defense Production Act, which is a piece of legislation that authorizes the president to, in fact, you know, mandate the production of goods in an emergency. And they've used that power somewhat, but in a very limited way. How can we understand that reaction? And, and would in another administration have done this differently? Uh, Adam, you want to start out with that? Since Well, I think obviously a part of the reason is, is ideology. Um, there's, you know, a worldview um, among many conservatives um, who have top positions within the Trump administration that um, the that it's not the federal government's responsibility to respond aggressively to a crisis like this one, that the states need to be the first movers and that the federal government needs to step in when they're ineffective. Um, so that's a big part of it. Um, but and I wanted to go back to something Matt said. So Matt was talking about sort of our cultural assumptions and our cultural traditions in this country, which kind of um, tend to favor decentralized approaches to policy and so on and so forth. I think that, you know, um, that's true to some extent, but I also think that, um, you know, as you sort of alluded to earlier, Bill, Americans have kind of come to expect um, aggressive, an aggressive national response to policy issues. You, when there's a major um, issue affecting the entire country these days, um, Americans expect the national government to step up. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to say about, you know, one thing that's about kind of what surprised me the most about um, a lot of what's happened, um, maybe not the most, but what surprised me a lot about what's happened in this crisis is just the sheer amount of attention that governors are getting um, given how nationalized our politics and political system have become, you know, there's been a lot of literature about this in political science in the past 10 years. Um, Americans these days have become very nationalized in their political attitudes. That has a lot to do with the media that they're consuming. They don't know very much about their state and local officials, right? It used to be that Americans knew who their governor was as well as who their president was. Um, these days, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that um, that's much less common than it than it used to be. Um, and so the, the, the fact that governors um, are getting so much attention, that, that individuals are tuning into these newscasts or these um, press conferences that governors do um, on a regular basis, um, you know, is, 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 um, is, is quite surprising to me. And, and yeah, I think in part it's just a reaction to the vacuum that, um, that's, been, that's been created by the federal Matt, government. do you have a comment about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with what Adam just said, um, that this is really going uh, counter to the trend of sort of the nationalization of policy and, and politics of, that we've seen. Uh, from a media perspective, I mean, one of the things that's one of the many things about this whole situation that's really troubling to me is, you know, we've seen a, a long term decline in uh, resources and attention toward local news and in particular coverage of uh, local public issues, political issues, and state politics and state public policy. And 
uh, you know, I think a lot of Americans, right, for various reasons, have not had access to that kind of news and or been less interested in it over time. They're not in the habit of paying attention to those things. And now when we're in a crisis where a lot of the action, for better or for worse, in terms of important public health directives, changes in policy, uh, and important information is coming from the state level and even localities, that's really problematic, right? I think there's an awful lot of confusion out there in the country and uh, and disagreement, of course, and some of it, though not all of it, I think is rooted in um, just the, the localized and state level response and, and just the lack of, um, you know, uh, information flow that, that is reaching people at that level. You want to chime in? At well, I, I mean, I would just say, I, you know, I agree with the with Adam's point that we we often look for a national approach in these kinds of national emergencies and that, uh, you know, the kind of general conservative uh, approach in the past has been to kind of decentralize uh, responses uh, or policymaking or, or, or whatever. But I think it's not just it's not just conservatism that's driving this. I think it's also unique to uh, Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, I'll leave it to the psychologists to uh, explain why he's unable to uh, admit when he's done something wrong or uh, tell the truth regularly. But there's a, there's, there's a, a, a kind of, there's an incentive in a, in a crisis like this where there are going to be bad outcomes, even if everybody does the right thing, uh, to shift blame. And Trump has uh, a tendency to do that more than most people. So I think that he's less likely to embrace a national response that could be perceived as as inept. And it's easier to just shift the blame to governors who he can tweet about that they're doing a bad job. Well, one way that Trump's asserted himself is that he certainly called attention to himself through these daily, his own daily briefings that have been, you know, very extensive. Matt, I'm wondering what you thought of, you know, that that he's he's clearly got a media strategy. Connect if if he doesn't have a strategy for distributing health supplies, he does have a strategy, a media strategy for calling and keeping attention on himself uh, through this crisis, right? Oh, for sure. And I think that, you know, that's in keeping with what he's been doing all along. Right. And we'll see how effective that strategy is. I mean, you know, most importantly, of course, for, you know, helping us pull out of the crisis, but also politically for him down the road. Uh, I just think that uh, that I just want to make a, a point about ideology that was brought up earlier in conservatism. So, I mean, I agree completely that a lot of this is ideological in the sense of, you know, conservatives not wanting to, uh, you know, uh, be on, on the side of aggressive federal action and the states should have these responsibilities. But what I think is really interesting about that is, unlike, say, even Hurricane Katrina, a massive, massive disaster, right? Um, it's not just the scale of this, it's the scope of it, and it's the very nature of a pandemic that crosses especially in today's society, crosses borders, crosses geography so quickly. Uh, and the ways in which that is affecting and will affect the economy and will affect business, which potentially puts up kind of a tension in the conservative ideology between, you know, this desire for highly decentralized responses 
and the need for a nationalized centralized response to um you know to frankly calm the markets and 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 just uh you know support business right and i think that um that'll be interesting to see how that plays yeah, out and it seems that trump's response is is to hold these press conferences daily to give the appearance that something's happening when all that not 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 that all, all that much is going on um yet i'm i'm wondering to what extent is this not just ideological, even if it is somewhat ideological, if that ideology is is being uh, carried out through an administrative state that has been sort of robbed of its capacity to respond effectively. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, the interesting book by uh, Michael Lewis, The Fifth Risk, that came out a couple of years ago about the first uh, weeks and months of the Trump administration, where Trump's people would come in and were very dismissive of expertise, uh, not concerned about the people holding positions and government agencies having the necessary competence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder if part of what we're seeing here is the fallout from that sort of lack of, of concern or, or without even, uh, uh, a sense that, that one doesn't have to care about having people in positions that are you know, competent and capable of responding in a crisis like this. Uh, I mean, in some ways, uh, Americans have come to see Anthony Fauci as like the one, you know, competent person in in the in the government who's actually knows what he's doing, uh, as opposed to a lot of the other actors. Uh, what do you all think about that? Is this a, a consequence of a, not just of ideology, but a decline of administrative capacity in this administration, Matt? So I just want to jump in on that real quick and, and think about it. I mean, certainly I agree. I agree with Bill that, um, you know, potentially a great deal of this is due to, you know, the Trump administration's own style and actions it's taken toward the administrative state. There's no doubt that the that the limited capacity was greatly affected by that. But I do think it goes back much further than President Trump. And I think it, it's it's been more of a a long-term trend as well that goes back years and decades. So just as one quick example, to take the economic end of this, right, these stimulus checks, if we want to call them that, that are going out to people, one-time payments through the IRS. I mean, the IRS has been, it's not just about administrative competence and leadership, it's also just about funding and just, you know, technological capacity. The IRS has been defunded um, for many, many years, predating the Trump administration. And, you know, their, their technology is old. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing, in part, the fruits of that now, right, that it's, it's, it's taking quite a while for these checks to come out. Um, and that, you know, with a more muscular, right, to, so to speak, uh, you know, agency there, um, we potentially could have seen a very different now, the same thing's happening at the state level with unemployment compensation, right? There's a lot of states that have, have cut back on, in the capacity to process unemployment claims. And now with the surge, most states are finding themselves really behind in their ability to just handle this. So I think that's, that's a similar kind of uh, to, to what you're talking about, Matt. Um, Adam, do you have any thoughts about that? You're, you're a student of, of government administration to some extent. Well, um, I, I would agree with with what you and Matt just said, and and I think that um, this kind of goes back to my earlier point. In my view, um, 
the effectiveness of our or the United States' response to this crisis has less to do with the the American governmental structure and more to do with just the contingency plans that were in place, you know, how prepared we were. I don't think we were prepared for this at all. And I think in large part that's because of the hollowing out of expertise in the in the federal bureaucracy that, that both of you are referring to. Um, that to me is the is the crucial factor here. Do you think this might change after this crisis? Can we can we imagine in a year or two suddenly people, you know, people in Congress wanting to fund these agencies or come up with uh, uh, is, is there going to be an attitude change about uh, the federal bureaucracy and about bureaucracy in general? My suspicion is, and again, there's no way to know. We're only at the beginning of this crisis. And so how everything transpires, you know, is anybody's guess. The early signs I've seen um, would suggest that, you know, in general, um, you know, the, the views of both um, political elites and the public about um, the bureaucracy writ large, um, the role of an administrative state in our society, um, I just I, I think that that's going to be a lot more um, difficult to it's going to be it's, it's, it's unlikely that that's going to change as much as maybe some people would hope in large part because so much of that those views are, of course, wrapped up with partisanship. And the early signs are that, you know, again, a lot of things remain to be seen, but the early signs are that um this this crisis is is not going to be is not going to overwhelm kind of the defining feature of American politics for the past 20, 25 years, which is this really toxic, virulent partisanship that that uh, affects everything from you know our crisis policy responses on down. Um, you know you can see you know the, you know partisanship partisanship seeping into everything um, right now from you know state federal relations all the way to the extent to which Americans view this as, as, as a true crisis. And, um, you know, I think that that kind of the role of party conflict in shaping um, our um, approach to this is, is, is going to, you know, continue to prevent maybe, you know, ma- the kind of massive transformational change that you're kind of alluding to. Paul, Matt, uh, what do you think about what Adam just said? Um, I, you know, I agree. I think that uh, it's very hard to separate partisanship from um, so much of this crisis. Um, You know, I think about what happened in uh, Wisconsin yesterday with voting. And that was you you had conflict that that runs between uh, the, the Democrats and Republicans in Wisconsin over who uh, over how they're going to conduct the election, whether it's going to whether they're going to extend the, the deadline for uh, ballots for mail-in ballots that jumps up to the Supreme Court very quickly and gets decided on a partisan basis, uh, you have a partisan lens through which people are viewing how serious the crisis is. So governors in uh, Republican states, especially governors who are particularly close to Trump. Uh, react differently than governors in in, in other states. Um, the South is now poised to get hit, uh, especially hard by the by the by COVID nineteen. Um, you've got uh, a region that's not been locked down as much as the rest of the country, and 
one that is uh, poorer and, and whose citizens have less access to healthcare. And access to healthcare is going to be another issue that's going to kind of be brought more to the forefront, um, I think, after this crisis. I don't know that things will change. I tend to agree with Adam that it's hard to make uh, structural changes in, in, in American politics, but that's going to be something when you have a bunch of people who are losing their jobs in the middle of a health crisis, uh, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to be difficult when we, when we taught, when we have tied, uh, health insurance to employment. So on the issue of the, the regional differences that Paul mentioned, just quickly, I think we need to add as well, not only is the South you know, poorer, uh, and the, there's the partisan angle there, but also just the policy capacity at the state in many of those state and local governments is um, you know, or, you know, an order of magnitude below what it is in some of the other states. And so I think that for a variety of reasons, uh, that's going to affect the severity of the crisis in, in, in those areas, particularly on partisanship, just on the public opinion angle. I you know this is trite to say, but we really are in uncharted territory here when it comes to things like an increasing polarization and attitudes we're beginning to see in data just in terms of, you know, the extent to which people are concerned about the health risks of COVID and, you know, uh, and some of this, I would argue, has to do with different information flows and misinformation flows that are uh, very much aligned with partisanship. Uh, and, you know, we'll have to see again politically what the effects of this is are down the line. But one wonders you know, when we think about voting, you know, the issue that the decision that Paul was talking about, depending on how these elections go, how much it ha- absentee pallet, uh, balloting, excuse me, is additionally allowed. Um, how are differential turnout rates potentially going to come out of this right along partisan lines with maybe many Republicans being less concerned about uh, the risks of uh, to their health, right? Going and voting in person. Um, And, you know, I think that, you know, we'll have to see how that goes, but we really are in a a strange situation here. I think uh, yesterday's election in Wisconsin bodes ill in terms of what you're talking about, Matt. Uh, And there was an election where, Clearly, uh, the Republican Party was, uh, it's, it, it, it appears to me, was taking advantage of the crisis for, for partisan gain. Uh, evidently, the, the big election that was the most concern was not the presidential primary there, but rather this election for a judge on the Wisconsin Supreme Court who could be a crucial vote uh, on a voting rights case that's going to be coming down the line. And uh, there's, it's a high, hotly, it was a hotly contested election, and the Republicans uh, evidently thought that uh, a lower turnout uh, in this election uh, might advantage their candidate. So they thought, uh, we're going to just forge ahead with the election uh, no matter what. Now, on the other side, the Democratic governor wanted to extend the, the vote to allow a better turnout, perhaps because he wanted to advantage the Democratic candidate. But here we saw you know, in this very important issue of how to conduct elections, it was partisanship that seemed to be driving things. Can I, can I, can sure. I jump in on that sure. real quick, Bill? I, I just wanted to add that we also saw this divide in Wisconsin that we, that we see nationally between uh, cities and rural, rural counties, right? So, and, and, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's upsetting, but it's interesting that the, the, 
crisis that we're facing right now, this this pandemic, has a greater effect on concentrated populations, right? So in, I think I read that in Milwaukee, they had, uh, what, five polling places open uh, as opposed to uh, the kind of many, many that they need to accommodate the hundreds of thousands of voters who they might expect to show up in a normal primary. Right. And, um, and so it's, so it's, you know, it's, it, it, it kind of brings up right in front of us the, this, not just the liberal conservative divide, but the kind of urban rural divide, which is, which is, uh, connected to that. Adam, I think you want to say something here. Yeah. So I was just going to say that, um, you know, I think that the, uh, degree of conflict over election law and election administration related issues that we saw in Wisconsin um, over the past week should be deeply concerning to all Americans because I think it's a harbinger of things to come. You know, I, um, it, it's, it was pretty clear that, you know, before this crisis hit, um, that this year was going to be a year with tons of election-related litigation, tons of challenges to voting laws and um, administrative decrees about um, election rules and so forth. Um, you know, we've been moving in that direction as a country um, over the past 20 years to more and more election-related litigation. Um, and I think that the amount of litigation um, over the upcoming election is going to skyrocket excuse me, skyrocket. Um, as a result of the coronavirus crisis, we're going to see lots and lots of states trying to jumpstart um, um, uh, voting by mail, um, expand their options for um, absentee ballot, no excuse absentee ballots. That's going to create all sorts of um, issues and concerns and conflicts. And, um, you, you know, I, I am anticipating that we will not know um, who the winner of the presidential election will be on the night of the presidential election in November. You know, it, it, you know I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's, you know, that, that that's certain to happen. I'm just saying it's entirely possible that there's going to be challenges in lots of states that are going to take a long time to iron out. Well, that's a sobering thought, right? Uh, what are the what are the Paul Matt? What do you think about that? I mean, do, are we are we in, going to be faced with just a chaotic election uh, in the next over the next few months? Uh, I, I would agree with Adam that that's a distinct possibility and increasingly likely uh, as this goes on. For all the reasons he said, I'll also just add you know a connection to federalism here as well. I mean. Uh, I'm not suggesting that if we had a more centralized system of election administration under the current White House, you know, things would be um, as many people would hope. But, you know, the very fact that we leave it up to states and then by extension, in many cases, localities to run elections to the extent that we do in the U.S., um, I think that's feeding and enabling a lot of these uh, arguably pretty democratically um, troubling developments. Yeah, Paul, thoughts? Well, I, I, you know, I would, I would go back to the kind of unique situation of having Trump in the White House. Uh, when I'm thinking about what might happen in November, he's already, uh, in the past, made a lot of claims about voter fraud that aren't true, and I can only imagine um, that those will accelerate when there's uh, 
additional chaos injected into the process by something like a, a pandemic. Well, well, since we brought up the election, uh, how do you all see the electoral, the, the, the contest shaping up over the next few months? It's clear now that Biden's going to be the Democratic nominee. Uh, Trump's going to be the Republican nominee, obviously. Uh, what, what do you see as the dynamics of the race, even in the face of this maybe chaotic electoral process? Uh, uh, is one candidate or the other uh, likely to be advantaged by these circumstances? Or I think or? I think this is really, again, as with so many so many things, we're in unknown territory here, um, in large part because you know. So many, so much of what we know about presidential elections and how they work um, hinges on the state of the economy, right? The state of the economy um, has, in the past, really framed um, a lot of presidential elections, and that's because you know the economy is, is generally speaking, the number one thing that voters care about. But you know, right now, what we're seeing is that although voters do care about the economy and they're very concerned about um, the economic, the massive economic hit that we're going to take as a result of this crisis. Um, it's also the case that, you know, public health um, and the public health response um, to uh, this crisis is even more on voters' minds at the moment. Um, and, and so um, that throws all of the uh, for political science forecasting models and so on um, off kilter. Um, I think it's likely that um, the the campaign stage of the general election is going to be a whole lot shorter um, than it's been in past years. Um, you know, the, it looks like the Democratic National Convention is going to be held, if it's held at all, in August. Right, the Republican National Convention will be held after that. Um, you know, so we're already talking about a truncated general election campaign schedule. Um, so we so we may not even see these guys nearly as much as as, as we've seen previous presidential um, candidates. Um, certainly not out on the campaign trail, but just in general, you know, in in in, in campaign related activities more generally, um, or at least if we'll see them, we'll see them in a different way than we've seen presidential candidates in the past. Yeah, it's certainly questionable that there are going to be big campaign rallies. Right. Uh, I mean, well, Trump seems to want to do it, but, you know, uh, whether or not that's going to be possible, uh, you know, it really remains to be seen. Matt, Paul, what are your thoughts? Yeah. So, Matt, uh, yeah, to follow up on what Adam said, uh, you know, one thing to think about here is uh, if if that, in fact, happens, if if that campaign season is truncated in that way, um, you know, is one party or the other going to be advantaged? I mean, we don't know, but um, I agree with Bill that, that the president wants these rallies. I'm thinking about the kind of um, get out the vote drives, right? And the kind of in-person voter contact that's really important. And to the extent, which is not always the case, but often that higher turnout, especially in certain areas, advantages Democrats. And I would say in general, the Democrats need to, to, to drive turnout up in this election. Um, you know, to the extent there isn't that kind of face-to-face -face voter contact or not to the level, right, that was expected. Um, and it becomes more of a so-called air war, more of a media and advertising and social media kind of affair. Um, that does not, in my mind, at this point at least, bode, bode well for the Democrats. And those electoral, uh, the, the electoral chaos itself is going to depress turnout, right? I mean, if it's going to be probably more difficult for a lot of voters to cast their ballots. 
depending upon, you know, what the situation is. Uh, and then there's likely to be uh, immense variation across the country there, right? I mean, we've seen a situation where uh, so-called blue states dominated by Democrats have supported early voting and uh, measures to encourage voting. So they might, in this election, expand upon those things, whereas other states are going to, uh, perhaps Republican states, uh, try to limit voting. And then there's going to be, as Adam says, these a lot of litigation probably around all of this. So it's really yeah, and Adam, and just to kind of piggyback off of something Matt said earlier, um, it is absolutely the case that um, the fact that we have an, a very decentralized election administration system um, in this country it, it, that is a major problem, and that's actually something that makes the United States unique. Um, there's really um, no other advanced democracy in the world that dis- decentralizes the running of elections to the same way we do. You could call that a feature of federalism, right? But there's countries in the world that, you know, are far more decentralized in other ways um, than we are um, that um, have chosen to have a very centralized election administration apparatus in place. And and so we're really unique in that particular regard. Um, And it's pretty clear that, you know, that that feature of our political system causes us nothing but problems and is 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 going to continue um to causing to cause problems uh you know and and most likely this year okay well it's a lot of sobering thoughts uh one last topic that i want to spend a few minutes on and that's the passage of this emergency legislation in congress over the last couple of weeks We've had three major pieces of legislation pass, including a $2 trillion uh, relief package that included a lot of different kinds of elements. And then Congress is evidently working on a fourth package that uh, they've been negotiating. Uh, And amazingly, in this system in which we've been used to gridlock and things not passing, we've seen this legislation pass very quickly. you know, in a very short period of time. Uh, what, what, is this just a, a result of the crisis? Uh, people just acting differently in a crisis or uh, is something else going on here that we need to think about? Matt? I, I, would, I would say generally it is a response to the crisis. I think that both Republicans and Democrats in Congress right now, although there's tremendous disagreement about the content, right, of any of these pieces of legislation, um, I think for different kinds of reasons, both sides are incentivized to act quickly. Right? And that's an unusual, to put it mildly, kind of set of circumstances in American politics in recent years and decades um, I don't think this signals anything like, um, you know, a movement toward bipartisanship on any and any longer uh, term scale. The, the Republican Party, in speci- especially, uh, you know, just a few years ago in the Obama administration, the Republicans refused to cooperate with the Democrats on anything. Uh, yet they're, you know, passing, for example, no Republican voted for the much smaller you know, $8 billion stimulus package in 2009 that the Obama administration went and passed. And now they've signed on to, you know, legislation that's probably three times that amount. Uh, I wonder if the fact that the Republicans control the presidency and have majorities in the in the Senate, if that in fact is, is influencing the Republicans here, that they know they can't escape uh, responsibility for, for things not happening. They, they have to 
support this stuff because it's it's their government. Adam, do you think that's right? Yeah, I I think you just about answered your own question there, Bill. It, it I, it's pretty obvious to me. I'm like a lawyer, huh, Paul? <laughs> I know the answer to the question before I ask ask it. Okay, yeah, Adam. Um, yeah, it's pretty obvious to me that that Republicans would would you know su- signed on to this to to this massive uh, stimulus package. You know, knowing that you know um, their incumbent president um, was going to be on the ballot this year, um, and I mean, as far as whether you know this pretends um, for more you know cooperation um, between the parties in Congress in the future, or you know whether that this portends you know a dramatically expansive uh, a dramatically expanded. Um, federal government approach to domestic policy in the future. Uh, Who knows? You know, there's no way to know. But, you know, you know, one one possible indication um, that that's not the case is the fact that, you know, the party's rhetoric on taxation policy um, hasn't uh, changed at all. Um, I mean, it's not really a, a big part of the conversation right now, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, putting into place these gigantic, gigantic new federal programs or putting into place lots of federal spending um, will at some point have to be have to be buttressed by significant increases in taxes. And so, you know, as long as Republicans oppose, you know, large tax increases. Um, you know, it seems to me like this is just going to be a temporary blip on the screen that adds a lot to our deficits and, and debt, but doesn't, you know, fundamentally change policy in the long run. Okay, before I uh, finish this off, I wanted to give Matt a chance to talk more about the media coverage of this crisis generally, uh, the politics of it, but just even even the, the crisis itself. Uh, how would you grade uh, the media overall, to put it simplistically, Matt? <laughs> uh, I mean, this is rare for me, but I think for much of the mainstream media, I would I would grade them fairly favorably in terms of coverage of the crisis uh, and you know working under really difficult circumstances. Uh, and I think you know, um, in terms of fact checking, in terms of trying to you know cover the issue substantively, get out important information to the public about health concerns um, and those important aspects of the of the situation. I think what's troubling here is that the, you know distrust in the media has really increased over recent decades. Overall, uh, it's especially increased among Republicans, and I think that that's we're seeing that play out um, in in this crisis in terms of. Uh, people frankly being uh, affected by and believing different things, right? And some people just not paying attention to what the mainstream media says and paying attention to other media sources. Well, Fox News for one, but also lots of other, uh, uh, you know, online outlets uh, on the conservative side, uh, frankly, really dangerous conspiracy theories and stuff on social media. You know, this is, we've never had a crisis anything like this scale that's occurred in this type of media environment. And so uh, I think that in, in many ways, uh, we have to we have to look at both the mainstream media and uh, this other almost parallel universe going on um, with political communication as well. 
Paul, Adam, you have any comments in, in response to that? Anything to add to what Matt said? Um, yeah, I, not really. <laughs> I think um, Matt pretty much hit the target there. Um, you know the, um, you know the kind of the overlay of of this of this unprecedented crisis with our incredibly fractionated media environment is, <laughs> you know, it's 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 really. Uh, it's disturbing to see a lot of what's going on. Although I think in general, Matt is right. The, the mainstream media has actually done a, a fairly good job of covering this comprehensively. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Matt, Paul, and Adam for a- Can I, can well, I also- Yeah, have yeah Paul, one, go ahead. I'm I, sorry, I didn't give you a chance I, to- It's okay. I, you know, I just had one other thought that was, it's connected to media, but it's kind of a larger thought about uh, about the potential consequences of uh, of this pandemic, I've been. I, I don't know if it's wise, but I've been reading a book about the uh, the Spanish flu, and it was this, there was a second wave that was worse than the first, and so in some ways there's a there's a potential for uh, this thing to come back in the fall uh, before we have an effective vaccine. And I'm not a doctor, but uh, you know. As a political scientist, I could say that would not be good for uh, the elections. It would not be good for uh, society or the world. Um, there's there's one other thing that I wanted to um, just to mention, and that's the possibility of someone, an important leader in some, either in the executive and in, in the legislative branch or uh, in the in the Supreme Court, uh, dying from this disease. And, you know, we have our, our, our leaders tend to be older. Um, they are the ones who are most vulnerable and that could, uh, that could really cause, um, a, a lot of chaos and controversy. You know, we've already lost some, uh, some, some fairly famous people. The great John Prine died yesterday. Um, and it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility that, that someone could uh, could pass away, and that would just kind of feed uh, the the kind of the narratives that have that have been springing up everywhere. And, and um, yeah, we have two presidential could, candidates in their seventies, right? You know, you, when you see Joe Biden behind that camera, kind of lock, locked down, you can tell that one of the things they're worried about is that that he will he will catch this thing. And I think I think. That, that Trump should also be worried, and, and so should a lot of people uh, who are um, who are quite old in, in government, and and not even to mention um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's who's been quite sick. And I can imagine the chaos that would happen if if uh, if Ginsburg passes from from this ailment, and that Trump loses and still gets to nominate uh, a replacement before leaving office it could just create some it could create a major uh division in 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 the nation and another elderly member of the court is clarence thomas who's not nearly as old as ruth bader ginsburg but he's he's, not nearly as old but but he also seems to have a lot of the characteristics uh, and heavier and that of, of a high risk category. This is true, and so and Stephen Breyer is yeah. is 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 old as well, and so it's you know it's that I, I just want to point out that potential for uh, kind of additional uh, upheaval. 
if 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 some if, if we've already had leaders who have who have tested positive, but if someone passes away, it could it could be uh, catastrophic. Good point, Paul. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, either Matt or Adam, Adam, do you have something else that you might want to add to, to before we wind things up here? Matt, no, no. Uh, Adam, you're all set. I think everything's been said that needs to be said. <laughs> okay. I hate all to right. end it. I hate to end it on such a depressing note. <laughs> okay. Well, it's these are, these are not uh, optimistic times, really. So, anyway, that's what it what it is. Well, thanks, thanks again, Matt, Paul, and Adam, for this uh, wide ranging discussion. I hope our listeners found it interesting. And thanks to Reagan for managing the technology. Uh, she did a great job orchestrating this today, and and we'll look forward to uh, additional podcast uh, in the in the coming weeks. And thanks again to our listeners. Uh, please subscribe if you haven't, and please tell four of your friends about Beyond Your News Feed. Thanks very much. <laughs>